The war strategies we'll be discussing tonight can be found in Ephesians 6, 10 through 15, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, and James 4, 7 through 8. We're living in a battleground, and the Apostle Paul warns us that this battle is a spiritual one. In verse 12 of our key scripture we're going to look at tonight, Ephesians 6, he tells us that we are warring against angels and principalities and powers and wickedness seated in high places. Recognizing this fact should put us all on guard against our enemy and make us aware of his strategies and his advancements. I read that the great general Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, war is a terrible thing. But if you're going to get into one, you better get into it all the way. And I sense that many Christians are sitting here tonight defeated because they're not taking the general's advice. They're not seriously engaged in this warfare to which we've all been called. Yet it is only when we realize that the battle is real and the stakes are high that we will learn to utilize the tools that our Heavenly Father has provided for us and begin to live victoriously as Christ intended. Listen to me. Victory in this spiritual warfare requires that you recognize that the very minute you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you inherited an enemy. And then when you stepped out in faith to live a life resting in God's promises, that enemy set out to trick you, trip you, deceive you, distract you, and seek to destroy you and render you useless if he can. That brings me to our first battlefield tactic. Go with me, please, to 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. This scripture tells me some pretty interesting things about our enemy that we need to note. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Hmm. Tells me two very important things we need to note about this enemy tonight, my fellow warriors. Number one, he is actively involved in espionage and intelligence gathering. He is roaming about and he is seeking. But point number two, which is probably more important than point number one, is he's seeking whom he may devour. That tells me he cannot devour every Christian equally every time and with the same success. He has to seek a particular to devour. Hmm. That means there must be some strategy in place that we can use to thwart his attacks and to stop his success or from the effectiveness of his blows. He's seeking 
He's looking, but he can't get us all. Hmm. That brings me to our second strategy. Go with me to James 4, 7 and 8. James 4, 7 and 8. Let's see what we can find here. Are you listening? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. If we continue on reading, wash your hands. Boy, we've been hearing that a lot, haven't we? You sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Churn, churn, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Excuse me. And then finally, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So what are the first two strategies we hear from James? If we want to keep from being one of those that the enemy can devour, step one, submit yourself to God. Step two, resist the devil. Now, I do not want to spend all of our time together tonight talking about our enemy and his wickedness and his tactics and his power. Listen to me, it's been his desire since the fall of creation to shift our focus to him, to take our focus away from glorifying God and from being thankful for the things that he is doing in the earth. Our enemy wants us to focus on him and on us so that we will be convinced that we have big problems and insurmountable issues. He wants us to give up, sit down, and fear his worst while we wait for it all to be over. He wants us to stop resisting him like James tells us to because he wants us to fear that we cannot win in a war against him. But I'm here to tell you tonight that you already have victory over Satan and all of his little demonic minions. And if you're going to claim that victory, then you've got to start by knowing in your heart of hearts that you are standing on this battlefield already a victor. Now let's face it. A fearful and despondent Christian is no threat to an enemy, and neither is a doubting, wishy-washy one. But our enemy knows that a child of God who knows the truth and who has a keen working knowledge of the real situation is a vital threat to his advancement, and to the success of his attempts. And that brings me to tonight's key passage. I'd like for us to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 15, and look at a few things together. Now, we already know this is Paul talking, and if you've been in any of Father Kendall's classes, he's taught on Ephesians. This is the last chapter in the book. Starting in verse 10, he says, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual realms of evil in the heavenly realms. 13. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. Stand firmly then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breast, breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Beginning in verse 10. The first phrase that Paul uses is, and finally. Now that's not an opening uh, phrase that you would use if you're writing a letter to someone. You know, and finally. It's a continuing phrase. It's a building phrase. He is adding to material he has shared previously. And if you jump up to verse one of chapter six, you discover that before he got to 10, he was talking about how to establish and maintain and work within relationships in the home and in the workplace. Previously in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he had given them some pretty good practical guidelines and insights for living their life. In chapter one, he reminds them of their glorious adoption and their redemption. He reminds them to live a life worthy of their calling and for, to walk and operate in unity as equal shareholders in the body of Christ to be thankful, to submit to one another, and to put away things like sexual immorality, greed, and foolish talk. And after doing all of that, now he comes to his readers and he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Look at verse 11. Paul tells his readers, what? He says, put on the whole armor of God so they can take their stand against the devil's schemes. So I want to point out some things here. Number one, whose armor is it? Whose armor is it? Paul says it's God's armor. Put on the whole armor of God. Listen, we are no match for Satan in our own power. We dare not approach our enemy trusting in our own merit, our own self-righteousness. We can't trust in our wisdom, our cunning, our charm, nor can we trust in the degrees that are hanging on our walls. If we try, to stand against our enemy in our own strength and in our own armor. And if there's a single flaw, a chink, a crack, an opening in that armor, then we become vulnerable. We're compromised. And that's where he's going to attack. And we know in physical warfare, compromise leads to what? Defeat. The same is true in spiritual warfare. Compromise leads to vulnerability, which then leads to defeat. Remember, 
He's going around seeking whom he may devour. One of the surest ways is to try to stand up against him in your own merit and in your own strength. That's why it's important while we're on this battlefield that our beliefs, actions, thoughts, and attitudes are generated by God's truth and reflect his character, his ways, and his word. A victorious warrior must constantly examine herself. She's got to check to see how she's thinking, how she's responding to other people, how she's interacting, and what she's believing. She's got to be sure that all these aspects line up with biblical teaching. That's what, that's what James is talking about when he says submit to God. We submit to his leadership. We submit to his authority, to his ways, to his will. And when we do that, then we abide in his presence. And we are armed with his righteousness and his holiness covers us and equips us. It's important. Why? Because while we have no power over Satan, our God is infinite and almighty. That means he has unlimited power, unlimited resources. Nothing is too difficult for him. And when we put on his armor, we wield his power. And we stand in his authority and under his covering. And we call upon his resources and his strength to stand against the evil one, not our own. Listen to me. The only righteousness good enough to go up against the realms of wickedness is the righteousness of Christ Jesus because it is the only righteousness that is perfect and flawless and without a crack or a compromise. And the only armor that is sure to send chills up the spine of your enemy is the armor of God Almighty. So if we will humbly submit to God and seek to walk in his righteous ways, then we will be covered by his righteousness, equipped by his strength, and in touch with his resources. After all, scripture says, if God be for us, who can stand against us? I hope I'm hearing you shouting amen all the way from Megat. <laughs> amen, if God be for us, who can stand against us? Point number two, look at this. Okay, the armor is God's. What does he say we need to put on? We need to put on the whole armor of God. So the armor is God's, and the armor is the whole armor of God. Did you catch it? And who puts it on? We do. He doesn't put it on for us. Listen to it. it, it listen to me. It is the warrior's choice. You choose whether or not you're going to dress properly for battle. You choose whether you're going to operate under the banners of God Almighty, dressed and covered in his righteousness, or whether you're going to go about it another way. And notice the armor's complete. Simple deductive logic, deductive math, 
tells me that partial commitment and partial preparation lead to what? Partial victory. And partial victory leaves room for partial defeat. And partial defeat means battle wounds, pain, despair, and lost ground. Paul is telling us here to be careful and faithful to cover every aspect of our being with the full armor of God. So how do we do that? We do that by staying in the word and by staying in fellowship with the Lord through prayer. And we do that when we gather together with other believers, just like we're doing right now, just like we're doing right now. Doing these things build our confidence and our faith and also hold us accountable in our walk. And without these safety measures, a warrior standing alone could fall prey to despair, doubt, and insecurity and might be led to believe that she's alone to rely upon her own ingenuity and resources <laughs> to manipulate things. And you know how successful that is. She might be tempted to turn to bitterness, to despair, or to other reactive behavior. I firmly believe that Paul knew how important unity in the body of Christ was to the success of our victory. Successful spiritual warfare counts on unity in the body. That's why he stresses it over and over and over again in his epistles. He stresses the need for us to stand together, unified like a line of warriors standing shoulder to shoulder against the enemy. Then when Satan tries to redefine sin, I like that one, tempt us to doubt, to give up, to despair, we are able to hold the line because we can hold one another firmly grounded in truth. And if we stand together and refuse to believe the enemy's lies, find out what the word of God says, and then live our lives grounded in that truth, Satan will not be able to stand against us any more than he could stand against Jesus Christ. Why? Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. If you go back to James 4, 7 and 8, he tells us, submit to God, number one, humble yourself, pray, repent. Number two, resist the devil. And what does he do? Resist the devil in Jesus' authority, and he has to flee. Now listen to that word flee. That don't mean take a leisurely stroll on up out of here. That means hightail it, buddy. Get out. Flee. Run for your life. Amen? Amen. Listen, you can't persuade Satan to change. He can't be reasoned with. He can't be outsmarted. And he won't be won over by your logic, your charm, or your cunning. You can't convince him to be gracious or merciful to you because you've had a bad day. But if you will submit to God and resist him, Scripture says he has to flee. Last point I want to make in this, I hope you're getting this. 
last point. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that we can stand against the enemy. The purpose of putting on the whole armor of God, dressing for battle, is to stand firm against the forward movement of the enemy, or the, the day of evil. Now, in our mind, stand is a really simple word, right? And, and for most of us, stand doesn't really connotate any kind of action at all. It's almost an anti-action word. It's like, a, hey, Nancy, you go run, and I'll stand over here and watch you. <laughs> It's not a go-to for us. And I think when we're thinking about battle strategies, stand wouldn't be the first thing we'd come up with. For most of us, we tend to run to the fight or flight methodology. You know, flight, I'm going to hightail it out of here and live to fight another day. Or fight is I'm going to gather up all my resources, my wit, everything I've got, and go out there on the attack. But if you look at this scripture very closely, it doesn't tell us to do either one of those. It doesn't tell us to flee, and it also doesn't tell us to go attack Satan directly, does it? It says, stand. And having done all, do what? Stand. It's verse 13. Stand firmly. There are multiple references in Paul's writing about standing fast, standing firmly, standing in the face of adversity. And I found it used 20 times in the New Testament. But out of those 20 times, four times it's listed in Ephesians 6. It's repeated in verses 11, 13, and 14. And stand seems to be the key word in this warfare passage. But the picture Paul is painting is not one of standing and waiting on the sidelines for the action to get started. And it isn't one of standing and watching everybody else like some kind of spectator sport. Listen, we all have an active position on that line. We're all called to stand. The word Paul is alluding to is a military stand. It signifies holding one's territory, stopping the advancement, resisting the push and the pressure, and refusing to back down or to retreat. And that requires having courage to hold your ground and to hold your allegiance in the face of an onslaught of enemy fire. But when we understand in this way, then we understand that standing is the wall of protection. Standing is the hedge and the defense. Listen, even standing physically in one place for a long time is hard to do. It takes great strength. It hurts you in places you didn't know you could hurt. It tries muscles and tendons you didn't know you had. Standing is difficult. And it's especially difficult when someone's telling you you need to run. And it's especially difficult when someone is trying to distract you or shift your focus or when things are being hurled at you to try to knock you off balance. Standing spiritually 
is just disheartening. It means purposing not to be moved from the belief that God is moving and working in this current battle situation for my good and for his glory. Standing requires resting in God's promises, trusting in his character and believing what he says. And then it's obeying what he says and speaking it out to my flesh and to my enemy. And I stand, I make a declaration. And I make it to my flesh, to all the host of heaven, and to all the minions of evil. Here I stand. I will not recant. I will not back down. I will not quit. No matter what I see, no matter what I feel, no matter what the consequences, you shall not pass. Look with me very quickly now at verse 14. This was very interesting to me. Verse 14, if I can find it. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So here's my question. What's the first piece of armor we put on when we're standing? It's the belt of truth. It's the belt of truth. To gird yourself in modern day terms like Paul was talking is about wrapping a belt securely around you and putting it in place. And you need to understand that the belt that he's talking about that a Roman soldier would have worn wasn't some skinny little thing. It was a very thick strap of raw hide or leather, sort of like what a weightlifter would wear today. And so it was wrapped and tightened and securely and properly put in place. And then catch this, every other piece of armor was attached to it and relied upon it to stay in place. Did you catch it? The belt went on first and then everything else was secured to the soldier by it. Everything else hung and rested securely because of it. God's truth is the center of his armor, my friends. And it's that upon which everything else hangs and relies. It guards our hearts and our organs from deadly blows. It strengthens and straightens our spines so that we can stand, raise the shield of faith, pick up our sword, and deliver a mighty blow to our enemy. And being securely girded in faith is very, I mean, in truth is very important to us. Why? Because we know that our enemy is a deceptive, manipulative liar. He's the father of lies. Scripture tells us he's a liar from the beginning and there's no truth in him. Being girded in truth means that you've protected your heart with the truth of God's word, the promises of God. 
that you've chosen to live your life from that center. And when you gird yourself in truth and put on your armor, then you can take your stand against the enemy for your marriage, for your family, for your children. You can take your stand against his attacks on your finances, on your security, and on your future. And I hope you understand that a stand like that is invincible because it's secured and backed by God Almighty, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the mighty champion of the universe. Now, as we close, I need you to listen to me because I am going to give you a solid piece of truth that you can wrap yourself in tonight as you take your stand. Are you listening? Jesus has stripped Satan of the authority he stole from Adam and Eve in the garden. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that it was Christ's mission to destroy the works of the devil. And he did. He did. Because of what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago in his life, death, and resurrection, Satan's in a tough situation. His problem is massive and eternal, and he knows it. He knows that his kingdom's already defeated, and then he's operating on limited time with limited power and limited resources. So any temporary difficulties or problems that he might be able to inflict on the body of Christ are nothing compared to what he's got coming to him. And he knows it. He knows it. That's why he's out to destroy those whom God loves. That's why he's out to destroy those of us who have a guaranteed hope, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have an eternal life in the presence of our King. Our enemy is out to enlist as many rebels to rise up and revolt against the only true righteous Lord as he can. And he does not care what the consequences are to his recruits. Listen, if we're going to be victorious, whether it's the coronavirus or whatever, to be victorious, then we need to begin to believe and to live according to what we stand to proclaim every Sunday when we read our creed together. Standing together, we proclaim that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. We proclaim that on the third day, he resurrected and ascend, ascended into heaven. And where is he? He's seated at the right hand of God Almighty. It is finished. And as long as Jesus is seated on the throne, then you and I can stand. Amen? Amen.